I, uh, I appreciate, again, all the support in getting kids to Miracle Camp. I just want to give my own personal little plug. Uh, Miracle Camp is an awesome, awesome place. It's, it's our camp. Our church uh, association owns it. It's up in uh, the Lawton, Michigan area. And uh, that's actually where Lynn and I met one another. And when I was a junior in high school, I went to an ice camp. They called it Winter Retreat at that time. But uh, at one of the, uh, the sessions, the speakers were missionaries from Brazil named Art and Evie Yoder. And at the end of their talking, they just simply said, we believe that there are some students here who need to make a commitment on whatever it is that God calls them to do and to go wherever it is that he calls them to go. And uh, I was a kid who'd heard those kinds of things before and uh, never really felt overly compelled to respond, except in this situation where I really do believe the Holy Spirit said, Wes, you need to go up there. And so I went up, and they prayed over just the handful of us that went forward. And then afterwards, they gave us a card that reminded us that we had made a solemn vow that anything the Lord called us to and anywhere he called us to, we we would go and we would follow. I had no idea that would be Napoleon, Ohio, but... That worked out just fine as well. So uh, camp is not cheap. It's not any more expensive than sports camps or anything else that you could do. It's just got an eternal value attached with it. So moms and dads, do what you can. Save the pennies. Let the church know we want to help get kids to camp. Uh, If money is the issue, let us know. People will will help get your son or your daughter to, uh, to camp. I highly recommend it. So, well, the calendar says that we are literally about a month and a day away from spring. And I don't know about you, but, but I am ready for spring. Spring brings all kinds of things, including a little bit warmer weather, uh, flowers that are in bloom, major league baseball, and uh, tax season. <laughs> not everything's great about spring. I'm not sure if you've heard the, the song that was played there at the end. It was uh, kind of in the background, but Colton Dixon Uh, wrote a song called Build a Boat. And that song is uh, about a man that we're going to hear a little bit about today, a man named Noah, who uh, built a very, very, very big boat. And this morning, we're going to look at the section from Genesis chapter 9, which kind of covers the period of time when Noah and his family actually exit or get off the boat. So if you have a Bible with you, and I encourage you to bring one on Sundays, uh, or if you've got a phone, turn or swipe to Genesis chapter 9. I've had the opportunity to study this text for a number of weeks, and it's been uh, really a huge encouragement in my own life. And uh, I've seen some things that, having looked at this text for many, many years, that I've never seen before. And so I'm looking forward uh, at sharing it with you as well. I hope you'll find it encouraging. Uh, before we get to the text, though, I, I want to set up the new series that we're going to begin. And uh, we will get to Genesis 9, but I want to let you know that it, it's going to take us a little time to get there. Because I feel like I need to give you kind of a foundation in where we're heading for the next five weeks. Most of you are aware that last September, that's been some time ago, Levi launched a lengthy teaching series called Enriching Tradition. 
And during this season, we've actually been tracking and going through uh, the liturgical church calendar, which actually contains several different seasons. And each of the seasons is of different lengths, and they all have a different specific focus. Last week, Levi actually finished what is traditionally called Epiphany. And that's a time of literally looking at the glory of Christ. You'll remember that we were looking at a, a, a series called Man of Mystery, Jesus, How Do We Respond? And I, I personally thought that was an excellent, excellent series. Well, this morning is the first season or the first Sunday in a season called Lent. Some of you are very familiar with Lent. Uh, Lent actually started this past Wednesday, and it's a 40-day season of time, not counting Sundays, where people traditionally prepare their hearts for Easter. And there are several things that people do during the Lent season to prepare their hearts for, for Easter, while none of them are actually commanded. In other words, Lent is a man-made tradition. It's not something that God commands. But many of the things that people do during Lent are, are actually disciplines found in Scripture. A fasting, for instance, is one of those disciplines. Some of you maybe grew up Catholic or are Catholic, and you know that Catholics give up meat on Fridays during Lent. And while you all don't have to give up meat on Fridays during Lent, you, you might choose to do so. You, you could also give up things like social media or, or chocolate or, or coffee or, or any number of things. Traditionally, fasting has to do with, again, during Lent, cultivating a heart of repentance, a, a heart that says, I desire to turn away from sin. And that's a good thing to do any time of year. Another way some people prepare for Easter is by following some sort of either Bible reading plan or devotional reading plan. And uh, if you opened up the Pulse, the, uh, the electronic newsletter that we send out on Thursdays, you'll notice that uh, a reading plan, an online reading plan, was uh, contained in there. And it's from the uh, Gospel and Life organization, and that was founded by Tim Keller. That and many other reading plans might be something that you might want to do uh, as you prepare your own heart for Easter this season. Church, the key, though, is not to turning any of these things that you might do to prepare your hearts into an obligation. They're simply tools to begin to focus on the sacrifice that Jesus made and the power of the resurrection during the Easter season. So this morning, we're kicking off the season of Lent with a new teaching series called Covenant, Our Promise-Keeping God. And as the title suggests, during this series, we're going to look at five different covenants of God found in the Bible. So let's begin with the most obvious question. What exactly is a covenant? And I want to start by telling you what a covenant is not. A covenant is not a contract. Contracts are actually based on mistrust. If you've ever rented or purchased a home, you've signed a contract. If you've ever taken out any kind of a loan for a small amount or a large amount of money, you have signed a contract. You see, the, the bank will loan you the money that you're asking for. 
but they will ask you to sign a contract that you will pay back all of the money that you borrowed and that you will pay back some interest for the, the privilege of that money and that you will, you will pay a penalty if you fail to pay that back on time. Now, now why does a bank require anyone to sign a contract? Why not just a smile and a handshake and, and take the check with you? Well, the reason that banks require, all banks require contracts, is that they are aware that as human beings, as people, we often fail to keep the commitments that we make. People often fail to keep their promises. In our culture, the culture that you and I live in, we, we have uh, most of our relationships are fairly consumer-oriented relationships. And those relationships are really based, if we're honest, on pursuing our own happiness. For example, I have a consumer relationship with Circle K Gas Station. Here in town and the, the whole lot of them in the Northwest Ohio, because I can go into Circle K at any point in time and get my Diet Mountain Dew on their incredible Sip and Save program. I hope some of you uh, know what that's all about. I am a loyal customer. I am totally, totally committed to Circle K gas stations until... I can get my gas either cheaper at another gas station or I find a gas station that has a nicer fountain drink dispenser. You see, that's how how consumer-based relationships work. Covenants are not formed in consumer-based relationships. A covenant, and you may want to write this down in your bulletin, is a solemn promise based on trust. Covenants involve intimate relationships. In ancient times when the Bible was written, people took covenants incredibly seriously. I'm pretty sure that Levi is going to get into this in the next few weeks as we we go along uh, this series. But in the Bible, there were times where people who broke their covenants, it literally cost them their lives. Covenants were taken seriously. Today, probably the closest thing that you and I have as an example of a covenant is true biblical marriage. My wife Lynn and I have two adult daughters, one of whom is actually already married, and another one who recently got engaged. And so at the end of May, our our youngest daughter and our future son-in-law are going to come before God and a bunch of their friends as witnesses, and they are going to promise to have and to hold from this day forward. They are going to promise for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death us do part. Wedding vows were intended to be a covenant broken only by the death of a spouse. When you hear the term covenant this morning or in the next four weeks, think to yourself solemn 
promise between two or more parties. Now, before we jump into the text in Genesis uh, chapter 9 and look at the first of five covenants, there's one other thing about covenants in general that I want you to know and to keep in mind. There are two types of covenants. There are conditional covenants and there are unconditional covenants. Conditional covenants, as the name suggests, are promises with conditions attached. For example, citizens of of an ancient kingdom long, long ago might have pledged their loyalty to their queen so long as she provided them protection and governed them fairly. If the queen failed to do that, her part of the covenant, then the citizens were released from their, uh, their pledge of allegiance to her. Conditional covenants are based on two ways, two-way promises. Both parties must meet their end of the agreement in order for the covenant to be kept. Unconditional covenants, on the other hand, are one-way promises. There's no strings or, or conditions that must be met for the one party to receive the benefit of that covenant that the other party fulfills. In many ways, parents make an unconditional covenant to their children. A mom and dad have a son or a daughter, and it doesn't matter whether that son or daughter grows up to be a Green Bay Packer fan. Even though that disappoints the parent, the parent continues (laughs) to remain committed to their child. Okay, you'll hear more about that in the next five weeks. Uh, Let's get to Genesis 9, and and we're going to pick this story up at the end of, of the story. And this story of Noah, really, when you think of it, there are some awesome, incredible, epic stories in the Bible. But the story of Noah is among them. Uh, It's incredible. All the way back in Genesis chapter 1, we find that God told Adam and Eve, the very first two people, that they were responsible for populating the earth and caring for creation. And, And so Adam and Eve and those who came after them did just that. Historians say there were 1,600 years between Adam and Eve and Noah. And the population on the earth, even though it was an estimate, is estimated to have grown in that 1,600 years to be 100 million people. And some suggest that it could have been as many as 300 million people on the earth at that time. If you've got your Bibles open, you can even uh, look at Genesis 6, uh, verse 5. It says that wickedness on the earth had become so bad during that time, and this is hard to imagine, but every inclination of the thoughts and the hearts of people was only evil all the time. And because God is holy and he's righteous, uh, the sin in the earth had gotten so out of control God made the decision to bring, and this is what we need to keep in mind, a very just and a very well-deserved judgment on mankind. He made the decision to wipe them off the face of the earth. And God would have literally been justified. 
He would have been in the right to, to wipe everybody off the earth, completely eliminate all of humanity, but he chose not to. And this is where Noah's story begins. In Genesis 6, 9, we're introduced to a man named Noah who was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time as he walked with God. Now, the fact that Noah was righteous did not mean that he was without any kind of sin. It simply meant that Noah was the one man on earth who literally centered his life on God. So in, in grace and in mercy, God chose to give mankind a fresh start, a brand new beginning. He gave them a, another chance, a restart, a do-over. And in your Bible, sometime, you ought to look at, at Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, and you can read all the details of Noah's shipbuilding and his zookeeping. In short, God gave Noah very specific instructions as to how to build what really amounted to a vessel of salvation for them and for humanity. The ship would be, get this, over one and a half football fields long. It would fit a cargo of 150 semi-trailers. The cargo that would fit in 150 semi-trailers would fit in this boat. And the finished ark might have looked something like this. This is a picture uh, from the Ark Encounter. It's in Kentucky. You can actually literally go through that. And if you've never been, I would encourage you to do so at, at some point in time. It took Noah and his family, they say, 75 years. Again, that's an estimate, but most Bible scholars believe it took them at least 75 years to build that. And, you know, there are, are people who would say that the flood never happened, but it's very interesting. I read an article just this week that said there are over 200 people groups in the world that have some sort of global flood account in their history. Isn't that interesting? The Bible says that once the ark was built, God brought pairs of animals and birds and creatures of every kind. He brought them to Noah, and, and one male and one female. Noah was to bring them on the ark with he and his family. And we're told in Genesis 7-5, and this is pretty incredible, Noah did all that God commanded him to do. And at just the right time, God sealed Noah and his family in the ark. With the animals and Noah's family safely on the ark, God sent the rain and the floodwaters. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights, we're told. Noah and his family would have lived on this ark by the time the waters subsided over 370 days. Most of us have taken some long trips once in a while in a car, or, or an airplane, and you remember the, the feeling that you have when you finally arrive at your destination and you can get, get out of that vehicle, that's an amazing feeling. Can you imagine how ready Noah and his family were to get off that boat? And here's what happened. In Genesis chapter 8, it tells us after Noah 
and the animals were unloaded off the ark, the very first thing that Noah did was to build an altar and to worship God. And that brings us up to speed. So grab your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 9, and follow along as I read verses 8 through 17. And, and in this morning's text that I'm going to read, there are seven times where you're going to see or hear the word covenant. And when you do, think solemn promise. All right, starting at verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And verse 12 says, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures and every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. Friends, theologians call what what we just looked at here and what we're going to look at here in the next few minutes, the Noahic covenant, the Noahic covenant. And in the time we have left, I simply want to point out three features of of this incredible covenant that God gave and made. Uh, I want you to leave this morning understanding, first of all, who were the recipients of the Noah covenant? The second thing I want you to do is to have an understanding of what's the the nature of the Noah covenant. And then finally, I want you to, to, to be aware of the sign of the Noah covenant. And more than anything, I want us all to leave here this morning Understanding how does the Noah covenant impact our lives today? So let's start real quickly with the recipients of the covenant. I'm not going to say a whole lot about this, but I simply want you to see that God made this covenant not only with Noah and not only with his family, but look at verse 12. He made this promise, this solemn vow, to all generations to come. All generations to come includes you and it includes me. All generations to come, uh, if you're older like me, it, it includes your grandkids if you have them. It includes your future grandchildren if you have them. This promise that God gave is not just for Noah, but it's for all generations to come. 
before my grandchildren were born, this promise was extended to them. Now, again, I don't want to go into this in in too much detail, but notice also that the Noahic covenant was not just for people. Some of you animal lovers out there are going to appreciate this. Verse 10 says, it was for every living creature on earth. The promise was, and it still is, for all creatures, big and small. Go home and tell your cat about the Noahic covenant. The Noah covenant is just one example of what we see often in the Bible of what's called God's common grace. It's good things that God provides to to believers as well as to, to unbelievers. And it also demonstrates, quite frankly, that God cares deeply about all of his creation. Certainly humans being at the top of that. But, but he cares about little critters. He cares about uh, the nature that we see, and, and we should as well. All right, let's look at, at the nature of the Noahic covenant. Look again at verse 11. God says very specifically, Never again, if you've got your own Bible, you might want to underline, Never again will all life be destroyed by waters of a flood, Never again will uh, there be a flood to destroy all the earth. In fact, three times in the text that we looked at this morning, God uses the phrase, never again. There's nothing unclear about what God's promising here. God will never send or allow a worldwide flood to destroy all the earth. You and I hear that promise and we think, well, isn't that nice? You know, you and I don't want to live through a cataclysmic uh, flood. I don't swim well enough for that kind of a a water event. But can you imagine what it would have meant to Noah and his family who are still processing the horror and the trauma that they went through? Can you imagine what it would have meant to them to hear that never again would God destroy the earth through a flood? Friends, the the story of of Noah has really kind of been relegated to a children's story. Um, Those two daughters that I mentioned earlier, when they were younger, they shared a bedroom in our first house. And uh, we had a a Noah's Ark theme in that bedroom. Uh, There was a border that went around the, the paint and the wallpaper that had a cute little boat in it. And it had some cute little animals in it as well. Uh, But that truthfully is a fairly distorted view of the Noah and his ark story. Noah and his family toiled and labored for 75 years in their obedience to God to build this ark on dry land. Without any power tools, without any cranes. Can you imagine the ridicule? and the rejection that they felt from many in their community as they labored year after year after year after year. Have you ever thought about the fact that other than Noah and his wife and his three sons and his three daughter-in-laws, other than that immediate family, Every single other person in their life 
would be killed in that flood. Their parents, their grandparents had to be multiple brothers and sisters, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews. Think about your situation. Think about everybody that's outside your very immediate family, the people that you see on Monday and Tuesday uh, eating at your dinner table. Think about all those people drowning in a worldwide flood all on the same day. I wonder what that was like. Sometimes I wonder, did they recognize any of the voices that were outside the ark? screaming, begging to get in. Makes you think. They don't talk about any of that in the, uh, the children's version of the story. The promise that God gave to Noah and his family, that there would never, ever be something like that again, that there would be a flood that, that destroyed the earth, had to have been an incredible, incredible gift What it allowed them to do is it allowed them to trust in God and move forward with repopulating the earth and taking care of creation just as God had called them to do without fear when the next storm clouds rolled in, and and they certainly did. Notice also that God's covenant with Noah is unconditional. It's one way. There were absolutely no conditions that God put on his promise for Noah and the rest of us. If you'll look back through our text, you will find eight different I statements and not a single if statement. In verse 9, God says, I now establish my covenant with you. He says it again in verse 11. I establish my covenant with you. In verse 12, it says, this is a sign of the covenant I am making between me and you. Verse 13 says, I have set my rainbow in the clouds. God doesn't say, I will keep my promise if you all can learn to get it together. God doesn't say, I'll keep my promise if you can get along better. God doesn't say, I'll keep my promise if you stop sinning. God's unchanging promise is made to Noah and to all of us without any stipulations whatsoever. It's unconditional. Now, church, if, if this covenant, this promise that God made, if all it did was convey the truth that there would never, ever be a flood again, that in and of itself would be absolutely amazing. However, God's promise is so, so much more. The promise that God has made in the Noahic covenant is an ongoing demonstration of God's very good gift of grace. It provides all of humanity and creation with a reset. It provides us with another chance, with a redo, a fresh start. Don't anybody answer out loud, but is there an area in your own life where you would say, I'm in need of a fresh start? a reset, another chance, or perhaps a redo altogether. The Noahic covenant 
is a constant reminder that God is a God of new beginnings. He's a God of second and third and fourth and 125th chances. The Bible tells us that his mercies are literally new every single morning. So did you mess up this week? Did that sin issue that always seems to, to you know, struggle with, uh, did, it, did it come up again and, and did you fail? If you did, confess it to God and then move on. He still loves you. Did you miss an opportunity that God provided for you to do something good for someone else and you just missed it? If you did, that's okay. Try again. God will give you more chances this week. Church, God honors our heart when we come to him and we admit that we've blown it, that we've messed up. That's our promise-keeping God. Before we finish, I want us to consider the sign of the covenant that God gave. In verse 13, God says, I've set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and and the earth. Just as a wedding ring is a sign, a symbol of a solemn promise that's made, God provided Noah with an incredibly beautiful and amazing sign as a reminder of the promise that he had made them, the rainbow. And as we'll see during this series over the next several weeks, God very often attached a sign or a symbol with the, the promises that he made. And those signs were not for God. He's not going to forget the the commitment that he's made. The sign is for us because he knows as humans we have a tendency to forget. So there's some debate actually as to whether there were rainbows before uh, the flood or not. I don't think it really matters very much at all. What matters is the fact that whenever we see a rainbow in the sky we can be reminded that God will keep the promise that he's made, that God remains a gracious God. And he's kept that promise for over 4,500 years. That's a pretty good track record. Now, some of you know, the rainbow has been adopted by by other groups and other organizations as a symbol. But for followers of Jesus, it has been And it will always be a reminder of the solemn promise God has made in the Noahic covenant. Anytime that we see a rainbow in the sky, on a bumper sticker, on a t-shirt, or maybe even at a parade, we can be reminded and have the opportunity to praise God for his amazing, amazing grace, his protection, and his patience with us. So one final thing I want you to know about the rainbow. In the original Hebrew language that the Bible, that part of the Bible was written in in Genesis, the word for rainbow and the word for an archer's bow are exactly the same word. In the ancient time, a bow was a weapon of war. Have you ever thought about the direction of a rainbow. It points up. It's as if God is reminding us as his people 
that his wrath for sin is no longer pointed down towards us, but it's pointed towards the heavens. It's a reminder that Jesus Christ himself has taken the arrow of judgment for humanity. Think about that the next time you see a rainbow. In the weeks ahead, we will take another look at some more covenants that God has made in Scripture. And I want you to know that every time we see a solemn promise that God makes in Scripture, it reveals the nature of God's heart and how he interacts with his people. The Noahic covenant reveals a God who first and foremost desires to offer grace. Now, God doesn't force any of us to receive his grace, but he offers it, and we see that recorded many, many times through Scripture. This morning, as we begin to wrap up, I I want you to take a look at the screen at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The Bible says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen to that again. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me break that down for you as we close. God the Father treated Jesus as if he had committed every sin by every person. But Jesus committed none of them. While hanging on the cross, Jesus was in reality sinless. He was completely 100% without sin. But he allowed himself to be treated as if he had committed all sin. That means that God treats Jesus as if he had committed my sin, and then he turns around and treats me as if I had never sinned. That means God treats Jesus as if he had committed all of your sin, and yet turns around and treats you as if you had never sinned. You see, it's the righteous for the unrighteous that Scripture talks about so often. This is referred to as the great exchange. It's literally the best deal going, better than the sip and save by far. If you have never taken advantage of God's offer of grace, I pray that you would. In light of what I just pointed out in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at Romans 8.32. The Apostle Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The band can come up now if they'd like. Church, in other words, 
If God loves you and I enough to die a sinner's death, enough to take the arrow of God's wrath towards sin for us, don't you think he loves us enough to to meet the physical daily needs that we have? Wouldn't it seem true that, that if he loved us that much, he would heal the woundedness in our heart that maybe we continue to struggle with? Or that he loves us enough to take care of our children or our grandchildren in the future, maybe when we're not even around to, to look after them anymore. Or, or to, to lovingly, literally work all things together for good. Church, my prayer this morning is that as you leave here, especially as you see a rainbow, that you will think of the Noahic covenant and the absolutely incredible love that God has for you and I to offer us the grace that he has. You know, in in 2 Peter 3.10, it tells us that although the world won't be ever destroyed by the flood again, that there really will be a day when this earth will be destroyed by fire. There'll be a a final judgment that uh, we don't have to fear because as the the ark was a, a vessel of salvation for Noah and his family, for all humanity really, Uh, Our relationship with Jesus Christ provides us that salvation and protection that we need as well. Let me have a word of prayer, and then the the band will lead us in one final song of worship this morning. Thank you, Lord, for being a promise-keeping God. Thank you this morning and every morning for your incredibly undeserved grace and mercy. And thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to take the arrow of judgment for our sin And, Lord, we confess that there were many and will be many. Every time, Lord, that we see a rainbow, would you remind us of your power and of your love and of your victory at the cross. Help us, Lord, to prepare our hearts for the Easter season and to intentionally think about the the gift of grace that came at incredible sacrifice to you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.